If you would, turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. We will begin today's reading of the scriptures in our Old Testament passage, which will be the focus of the sermon today. We're going to be picking up where we left off last week in verse 13, and we'll cover all the way to verse 19. And we'll finish up, God willing, Ecclesiastes chapter 7 next week. If you would, stand with me now for the reading of God's holy and errant and life-giving word. Starting in Ecclesiastes 7. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Mighty Father, the word of Christ has been read and now will be preached. And we ask your blessing upon both. Amen. You may be seated. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, Solomon is trying to help us understand that wisdom is better than folly. 
In these verses that we're covering today, he goes about accomplishing that quest by saying three things to us. This is how the verses are divided up. See the works of God. I've seen it all. See these. Here are the means to navigate this life. See the works of God. I've seen it all. See these. Here's the means to navigate this messy life. He's trying to help us see that wisdom is better by first turning our eyes to the sovereign work of God. And then he brings our attention to this incredible mess known as life under the sun, a a life in which he seems to have seen it all. And then he closes this section by telling us what tools we can use to navigate the mess. So we'll start with the first one, verses 13 and 14. See the works of God. The word consider here in verse 13 more woodenly means to see or to look at. I believe, I, I didn't look this up, but I'm pretty sure that like when you read Proverbs 31 about the, the Proverbs 31 woman, and it talks about how she considers a field, uh, that means she actually went and looked at it or saw it. That's part of considering in this sense, right? To consider something, you must actually look at it. So what do we need to grasp here? What do we need to see According to Solomon, two things. The first is, we cannot change what God has decreed. That's what's being said in verse 13. The text in English uses the word crooked, or in some translations it says bent. And sometimes as we're making things, right, as we're building things, we have to take a piece of rebar and bend it this way, or we have to take this thing over here and mold it in that direction. Not everything that is in your house is completely straight by design. And, you know, if you're a homeowner, you know that there's things in your house that should be straight that aren't, and it's really frustrating, isn't it? But there's things in the process of building or doing something that have to turn a corner or have to be a little crooked or bent to fit just right. So I think what's being said here is that when God is bending things into place, uh, what he's done, we can't undo. We can't straighten it out. We can't undo the eternal decrees of God. Now, on the other hand, another opinion about what this verse means is that perhaps from man's perspective, we look at things and and because the lenses that we're wearing are cracked, it kind of looks crooked. It looks bent. And from our perspective, we just don't see it right. But the reality is, is that God has it sorted out. What he's up to is not crooked. It's not messed up. God's decrees are just. They're right. Now, the second thing that he's saying in these two verses, as he's drawing our attention to the works of God, is verse 14, which basically says, we receive whatever kind of day God has for us, right? Whether it's a Tuesday or a Sunday or a whatever day, God has determined what kind of day you're going to have, Now, what are the kinds of days described here, and why does God give us these different kinds of days? Well, there's days of prosperity, and there's days of adversity. And and the word day here, it could also be alluding not just to a single day, but a period of life. Perhaps some of you are like, man, I haven't had a, a, a day of adversity. I've had like a week or a month. Well, it's possible that that's what he's saying here. This is a period of time. But here's the point. Here's, what, here's the purpose. Here's what we're to do in days of prosperity. Here's what we're doing to do in good seasons of life. We're to be joyful. That's what he tells us to do. Be joyful. Another translation of this would be be good. Do good. Right? That's the purpose of, of prosperity. Whether it's a, a, just a day where things are going your way, everything's coming up sevens on a Friday for you, or if it's a decade or a whole life, you're not to take the good times and use them to take all of those blessings and gifts and just to terminate them on yourselves and to spiral out of control into uh, selfishness. That would be doing wickedness in days of prosperity. And then there's days of adversity. And he tells us that what we should do is we should consider. Again, we should look, we should behold, we should see on those days 
we should remember that God makes both kinds of days. That's what he's telling us in verse 14. When you have a good day, isn't it really easy on good days to go, ah, yes, this is a blessing from God. God has given this day to me, right? But we need to remember in days of adversity, in seasons when life isn't going so great, that even that day is under the sovereign control of God. Satan didn't give us that season of life. God has given it to us for a purpose. God gives us both at his pleasure. And you know what? We cannot know what will happen. Solomon makes this clear at the end of verse 14. We are limited and unable to know for certain what happens on this day or that life. Life is, as the great philosopher Forrest Gump once said, like a box of chocolates. You don't know what you're going to get. That's, that's basically what he's saying in verse 14. And you know what that does? It keeps us humble. And it keeps us relying on God. Because we don't know what kind of season is ahead. But God does. We can't know it comes after where we are right now. On good days, it's easy to believe, isn't it, that God is working all things for the good of those that love him. It's on the days of adversity that we need to remember that even in those seasons of life, God is working things out for our eternal good. Right? And we're more likely to look to God from a foxhole than we are from a feast. Do you remember that from previous verses in the book of Solomon? He says, better is the house of mourning than the house of feasting. He's reiterating that point here. Days of adversity do something within us and do something for us that days of prosperity just do not. Both of these verses remind us of our limitations. There are things that we cannot do and we cannot understand or know. God's plans are beyond us. We can't forget our limitations. There's a certain mystery to life. God is up to things that we cannot possibly imagine. His ways are not our ways, and his thoughts, they're not our thoughts. Have you ever heard someone say, well, we'll understand all of this one day? More than once, the words of Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes will say, that's not entirely correct. God knows things that even in eternity we will not know. Our minds will not ascend to the mind of the divine when we die and when glory arrives. In some of these two verses, wisdom is better because in wisdom, we see the sovereignty of God and our own limits and we embrace both as good things, not as something to rant and to rave about. Here's some applications of these verses. We should, as he tells us, we should consider the work of God because his works, his decrees, remind us of our limitations as creatures. And by considering the sovereign work of God, we are reminded of our position and status. We are creature, not creator. A second application would be this. When things are going well, we ought to be joyful. When things are going well, we ought to use good times to pursue what? Good, the good of ourselves, the good of our family, the good of our neighbors, the good of the church, the good of people around us. For we are often tempted to use times of peace and times of ease to pursue so much leisure that our hands become slack and we go into sin. We fail to pursue righteousness to a degree that we should. And third application would be this. In the days of adversity, we should remember our limitations we should remember that we can't live life depending on our own knowledge to know exactly what's going to happen next. But rather, we live life depending upon God, the God who knows what tomorrow brings, for he is already there waiting upon us. Now, after Solomon says, look, see, consider the works of God. Look at what he's done. Look, consider his decrees. Think about them. 
he turns to the earth to comment on the activity and the lives of men. And he says, I've seen it all. Spent a lot of time with my State Farm agent on Friday. That wasn't in the plans. Uh, it, it, by the way, it's ruling Elder Jeff White. That's my insurance agent. Spent time with Christian and Jeff. Had a little van trouble. A lot of fun. It was a moment of adversity for sure. And, uh, you know, Jeff's been in the business for 40 years. And he says, you know, every time I think I've seen it all, something else happens. And he says, now I've seen it all. That's where Solomon is here. He's a very old man. And he says, I've seen everything. And in his fleeting and frustrating life, he calls his life Hevel, fleeting and frustrating. What has he witnessed? Well, the first thing that he mentions in verse 15 is abnormalities, what Dr. Benjamin Shaw calls anomalies. Look, there are things in life, there are outcomes that occur in life that are atypical. They're not the norm. And one of the things that you need to know about proverbial wisdom, Proverbs in the book of Proverbs, and Proverbs in Ecclesiastes, what you need to understand about Proverbs is that sometimes... Excuse the analogy, but there's a glitch in the Proverbs matrix. Sometimes things don't go the way that the Proverbs said that they'll go. That's how Proverbs work. They're more often than not completely and entirely true. But wisdom helps us understand that this is the way that Proverbs work. In the wisdom literature, in verses like these, Solomon is helping us understand that there's a normative way that things operate. But on occasion, there are abnormalities, right? He, he said that, that, that uh, wisdom prolongs your life in the verses, I believe, that we covered either last week or the week before, right? That's his opinion. Wisdom will help you live a long life. Now he's showing you the abnormality. Here's the glitch. The righteous man actually seems in this verse to be dying precisely because he is righteous. He dies in his righteousness, and the wicked man seems to be surviving. He seems to be making it through life, having a long life, because of his evil doing. This is the abnormality. In the wisdom literature, the biblical norm, the most common case, is that the wicked man will die, the fool will die long before the wise man. The wise man, as Solomon said, I'm repeating myself, just last week, you're preserved by wisdom. This is the advantage of knowledge, he said. The advantage of knowledge is that you understand that wisdom is better than foolishness, and it's better because of this reason it preserves your life. Right? That's the advantage of knowledge. You understand the superiority of wisdom over folly. But abnormalities happen. And what else does Solomon see? What else does Solomon see as he observes human activity? Two things in verse 16 and in verse 17, one in each verse. Self-destruction by way of righteousness and early death via great wickedness and folly. Let's cover verse 16. Self-destruction by way of righteousness. That's kind of, 16 is kind of surprising, isn't it? When you read verse 16, when you heard me read it, it you're kind of like, what's going on here? This one probably caught some of you off guard. And it should. Even commentators will say, hey, this is notoriously difficult to interpret and understand. I'm like, thank you. That's of no use to me as I'm preparing to preach. But they sorted it out, I think. I think what Solomon is saying here is that there is a way to pursue righteousness that is way off base. There's a way to pursue wisdom that will get you turned upside down and inside out and actually leads you to your destruction. And there's actually four. As I was thinking through all of the different ways this could be the case, there are four different subcategories of this. The first is a pride-centered self-righteousness that leads to an arrogant pietism and not a true piety. It's actually impossible, isn't it, to be too righteous and too holy. That doesn't exist. God has never looked at someone and been like, you know, you're too faithful to me today. You're treating your wife and your children, your employees, you're being too righteous. Sin, 
Sin more, please. He's never done it, and he never will. The rest of the Bible makes it abundantly clear. Mankind falls well short of God's standard of righteousness and wisdom. And the Bible makes it clear that man can be self-righteous. And this leads to his destruction. Jesus is constantly opposing these kinds of people in the gospel accounts. But there's a second type of person being covered here. A person with a zeal for righteousness, a zeal for good things, that leads to his destruction because he lacked real prudence. Jesus said we are to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Well, what happens if we're as innocent as doves without being as shrewd as a serpent? Not not good things, let me tell you. Consider a young man, hypothetical, with a very narrow view of faithfulness and godliness, who's stirred up with a zeal for the gospel. He thinks it's the Holy Spirit working in him. It's really just his flesh. And he doesn't really understand what it means to be truly righteous and wise. So he storms off, Bible in hand, ready to share the gospel in the Middle East. And he just goes charging in without any prudence. Because he lacks that type of wisdom, because he's not shrewd, he storms off in his flesh into a Muslim country without the ability to navigate that kind of society well. And what do you think happens to him? He goes to his destruction. He thinks he's going with his feet, shod with the gospel of peace, part of the full armor of God. But really, his feet are just quick to shed his own blood. Should we discourage men from doing gospel ministry in hostile territories? Absolutely not. Let me make that abundantly clear. But we should equip them. We should hope that they have the maturity to be able to navigate that kind of scenario with wisdom and with righteousness, not with a false righteousness and a lack of wisdom or a false sense of being wise in their own eyes. Consider the Apostle Paul, right? His righteousness was fixed in the eyes of God because of the blood of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit working within him. He was a man who was working out his salvation. He was working out his righteousness in the world. And yet Paul knew that when danger was upon him in a city, he didn't have to stand around and be arrested. He would flee. He had the wisdom to escape. He would never denounce Christ, but he was often uh, let out windows or let out the back door so he could escape being killed. Because he had a long, fruitful life of ministry ahead of him, rather than a very brief season of preaching the gospel after leading himself to his own destruction through foolishness and self-righteousness. This type of person and another category of person are both addressed in one quote by Matthew Henry, the Puritan writer and pastor. He said this, In the acts of righteousness, govern thine self by the rules of prudence, And be not transported, no, not by a zeal for God, into any intemperate heats or passions or any practices unbecoming thy character or dangerous to thine interests. Do you hear what he's saying there? He's saying, make sure it's the Spirit of God, not your fleshy passions that are leading you in some sort of false zeal for the, quote, kingdom, for the Lord. And he goes on to say, note, there may be overdoing in well-doing, Self-denial and mortification of the flesh are good, but if we prejudice our health by them and unfit ourselves for the service of God, we are righteous over much. He's commenting on Ecclesiastes 7 here, and when he says righteous over much, he says overly righteous or too righteous. He's reiterating what Solomon has said. And the great Puritan not only addresses the one who lacks wisdom and destroys himself in his zeal, but he also addresses the man who is so gifted and so fervent for his work for the kingdom that he neglects his own health for the sake of the kingdom. Do you know what great theologian worked himself into an early grave laboring in theology and for the sake of the church? John Calvin. 
I'm at the age now where a lot of my friends who are pastors are becoming seminary professors, and that's kind of their unanimous opinion, is that John Calvin was so intellectually gifted and talented, but he basically became a workaholic and worked himself to death. Now, there's a fourth type of person being addressed in these verses, a fourth subcategory of someone who is overly righteous or pursuing righteousness over much. One author applies this verse to the type of Christian who is constantly anxious about whether or not they're good enough. There are people who are constantly fretting about not being righteous enough or wise enough to be acceptable to the Lord. Let me make it abundantly clear. You're not. Let's let's close the book on that. Let's end this chapter. Let's clear it all up. You are not wise enough. You are not righteous enough on your own merits. You cannot obtain on your own strength a level of righteousness or wisdom that will merit you the favor and love of God. That's why you need Jesus Christ. You must, not should, not maybe it's a good idea. You absolutely must rest in and receive Christ and Christ alone for your salvation from beginning to end, from justification to adoption to sanctification all the way to glorification. Many years ago, I found this so fascinating when I was in my early 20s, and I still think it's so interesting. I I spoke to a pastor who was ministering in West Tennessee at the time. He's born in Tennessee, raised in Tennessee, ministered for most of his life in the great state of Tennessee. And he told me about a conversation he had with an older minister who did a survey of professing believers who, back when the state of Tennessee had institutions for the mentally unwell and mentally unstable, uh, this man did a, a, a research, a study of all the people who profess Christ. And what he said was, is that a vast majority of people who were institutionalized and professed faith in Jesus, they were from Christian traditions that denied eternal security. They denied that, that believers can have assurance of their salvation. Church, I don't believe... I don't believe that that's mere correlation at all. I think if you believe that you are one step or just one bad day away from God's grace being withdrawn from you forever, if you believe that you can have a bad season of life or not quite be wise enough or faithful enough to be worthy of God persevering you, preserving you as the saints to the end, I think you're going to go crazy. I think you'll drive yourself to your destruction. I don't think Solomon is advocating here for some sort of Epicurean approach to righteousness or wisdom. I think he's warning us against the various errors that I just listed when it comes to our pursuit of righteousness and wisdom. Now, verse 17 is less surprising, but it still sounds odd. But what's being said essentially in verse 17 is that men meet an early death by way of wickedness, great wickedness and folly. Again, I don't think he's suggesting or encouraging sin in moderation. I don't think what he's saying is, hey, sin, but just a little bit. Like acceptable, socially acceptable sins, white lies, these kinds of things. Just do those. Just be a little bit bad, but not too much, because that's when disaster really strikes. Now, instead, I think Solomon understands that saints are going to continue to be sinful. Right? There was a great Latin phrase that Martin Luther used quite often. I won't try repeating it to you because I'll mess it up, and there's people in here that actually know Latin. Uh, but it basically said, we're, we're saints, and yet we're still sinners. We're still sinful. You will wrestle with sin your whole life. You're going to continue to sin. I think he's warning us 
about complacency and apathy towards our sin. That's the way of the fool. It leads to an early death. You see, wickedness, evil doing, is always wrong. It always harms us spiritually, even if it doesn't harm us physically. Sinful things harm our familial relationship with God. Right? We are covenant children. We, we have children. We understand what it's like. We have siblings, and even as adults, we have siblings. Sometimes we get in conflict with them. We understand that that conflict doesn't separate the family bonds, but it does hurt the familial relationship. So that's what I think is we're being warned about here, is that there are types of sins that don't just hurt your relationship with God, but could actually kill you. We sin throughout the week. Every one of us does. It's one of the reasons why we continually confess our sins to the Father on the Lord's Day. But clearly, nobody's missing because they did something so greatly wicked this week that they lost their life, right? Solomon is warning us here about the great acts of wickedness that cause us to lose life or limb. Matthew Henry, commenting on these verses, reminds us that the civil magistrate does not bear the sword in vain. And there are acts of wickedness that might be legal in various places, But there are acts of wickedness that even the civil magistrate says, yeah, we've got to do something about that. You're under arrest. Or we might even have to put you to death for that. So we understand this. The civil magistrate, the civil servant, has a duty at times to take away our life or even our our, our liberty based on what crime we've committed against our fellow man. So there's a warning here. Solomon is pleading with us not to lose our liberty or our lives by going too far down the road of sin and folly. Another aspect of this warning is that sometimes we start down on a road of sin. Have you, kids, has this happened to you lately? Where you started to do something and all of a sudden the words of some great sermon you heard lately dawned upon you like, I shouldn't do this. I should be wise, right? Or it was probably more likely the, the Bible reading that your parents are doing at home because that's fresher in your minds, right? You, you listen to hymns. You sing hymns, right? And so you're in, the act, you're, you're in the act of doing something sneaky and wicked and all of a sudden you go, nope, shouldn't do that. And you turn from the sin and you repent before it goes too disastrously far. That's what we should all do, big and small, as, as we're in the midst of sin. We should avoid it in the first place. But once we go down the road, we should go, nah, slam the brakes, hit a U-turn, and go back to righteousness. Repent. <clears throat> repent before it gets to this point here. Our primary motive to avoid sin is, of course, the love of God, loving the Lord, wanting to obey him. And yet we should also care enough about ourselves and others that we heed the wisdom of Solomon. He is using some consequentialist ethics to grab our attention and to draw us away from disaster. You don't want to sin because it could end up here. That's essentially what he's saying. And sometimes that's an appropriate warning to give. So why is wisdom better? Well, wisdom is better because it helps us to come to terms with what happens in the world. Don't be shocked. After today, when you see a wicked man prospering and living a long life, don't be surprised by it. Because God's word has told you that sometimes this happens. And when you see a good man die, quote, too young, don't be surprised by it. These are abnormalities, but they do exist in the world. Wisdom helps us understand that this is the way that things are in a fallen world filled with sinful people. And wisdom helps us to heed these good warnings. Here's some applications. One is directly from the Puritan Matthew Henry. He says, we must not be offended at the greatest prosperity of wicked people, nor at the saddest calamities that may befall the godly in this life. We must not think it strange. Simply, he's just saying what I just said. This happens. It's not the way it's supposed to be in a sinful, fallen world. But these abnormalities occur. 
There's another application. We must rest in the righteousness of Christ and exercise wisdom in our zeal for the kingdom. We should be humble in our righteousness and wisdom, for they are gifts from God. And we must repent of our sin and avoid grave wickedness for the sake of our own lives. Now, after telling us that he's seen it all, Solomon draws our attention to the means that help us navigate through this mess. Look at verses 18 and 19. He's essentially saying, see these things, take them with you. What are these things? Well, the fear of the Lord and wisdom. And when I was a kid, the Super Nintendo Entertainment System launched, and we thought it was the greatest thing ever. We could not imagine what kind of video gaming systems there would be in the future for our kids and grandkids. But one of my all-time favorite video games is The Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past. And Link finds his Uncle Lou, and Uncle Lou was trying to fight off evil soldiers, and he didn't quite make it. And so he sends Link to rescue the princess Zelda. And he says, here, take these with you. He gives him a shield, and he gives him a sword. Right? It's a mess out there. It's dark. It's raining. The kingdom of Hyrule has been taken over by a dark wizard. So take these with you. This is going to help you get through this journey that you're on. And the things that will help us get through the messy, dark world in this passage are the fear of the Lord and wisdom. Now, what's the relationship between these two things? Well, the fear of the Lord, as we know, is the beginning of wisdom. These two things go together like peanut butter and jelly. Show me a man who has godly wisdom, and I'll show you a man who fears God. Show me a man who fears the Lord, and if he's not yet wise, he is well on his way. And I think that you could state that the fear of the Lord and wisdom are like wartime instruments. They are means. They are tools. They equip us for the battle. If you want to live for Christ in a fallen and messy world, like the world of today, like the world was 500 years ago, or as it will be 500 years from now, you must fear God. It's the only way you're going to make it. You must have godly wisdom. It's the only way to navigate. And it's always wartime. Let's make this very clear. It's always wartime for the Christian in a fallen world. There's never a peacetime until Christ returns and establishes total peace. Even if Christendom 2.0 is providentially brought about by the Spirit of God in this world, peacetime has not yet come until the Prince of Peace returns and sets all things right. Solomon in these verses, in my opinion, is showing us that the fear of God is like a light that leads us on a stable path in the darkness And wisdom gives us the strength to defend ourselves, to defend the city. It's the analogy he uses. Let's begin with the fear of the Lord that serves as a light for our path. You remember in The Lord of the Rings, uh, J.K. Rowling has her own version of this. It's a a little bit derivative, right? Uh, Dumbledore creates the the Deluminator, and then he gives it to Ron Weasley, and that allows the the trio there to be able to uh, see in dark places. A little bit derivative of the crystal that is given to Frodo by Galadriel. It allows him to see even in the darkest places when all other lights have gone out. Well, what Solomon is describing in verse 18 is that a God-fearing man will take a hold of Solomon's two lessons, one in each hand. Right, the first lesson is, look, do not forget to not be overly righteous. His lesson about righteousness, right? Don't, don't pursue a false view of righteousness. And then the second lesson is about wickedness and foolishness. The God-fearing man, because he doesn't forget either one of these lessons, he avoids both of them. He comes out from the darkness of both of them. He avoids the pitfall of both errors, And we live in a a messy and dark world, as I've reminded us. And the God-fearing man, because he fears the Lord, he'll be able to navigate it all. 
The fear of the Lord helps us to arrive safely where we need to be as Christians. The fear of God is not just something that we bring into the house of the Lord as we worship on Sunday. No, it's a way that we navigate through life all through the week. When we go to work, when we live with our spouses and children at home, with our neighbors, with our siblings, as we navigate our careers or retirement, wherever we are and whatever we're doing in life, the world is messy, the world is dark, and we need the fear of God. Wisdom is superior because it directs us right down the middle. It helps us to avoid these two errors that Solomon is describing. It helps us avoid being given over to wickedness or the error of deep confusion about righteousness. Now what verse 19 says is that wisdom strengthens us. Uh, In A Link to the Past, sorry, another video game reference, uh, but you get this mitt, it's called the Titan's Mitt, and it allows you to lift really uh, heavy things. You get the power glove first, and then you get the Titan's Mitt, and there's all these rocks, big boulders in the game that you can't get by, and uh, you're like, well, how do I keep going if I can't get by these rocks? You get the Titan's Mitt, and then you're able to, you have the strength then to lift this boulder out of the way and defend yourself and get through the kingdom and, and conquer the evil one. What's being described here in verse 19 is 10 rulers of a city. And what, 10, what are 10 rulers of a city for if not at the very least they are to use their strength and their position to organize a defense in times of trouble? I think that's what's being alluded to by using the analogy of 10 rulers in a city. You see, wisdom is more valuable to a wise man than 10 rulers are for a city under attack. Wisdom helps us defend ourselves from the temptations that we have to sin. But also, wisdom can help us defend ourselves from the folly and sin of others, right? I often will find myself driving down the road, and I am doing everything I should be doing, and I look next to me, and there's someone driving with their knee while they're eating and talking on the phone, or eating and, ladies, putting on your makeup in motion, not at a a red light. Uh, And I just think, I look at that person, I go, I got to get away from that person. I got to slow down. I got to speed up. I got to do anything I can to get away from this fool, right? I had a friend in high school. He would drive like 30 minutes every morning into school, and he would like get dressed and eat while driving his truck. If I saw him driving down the road when we were in high school, I would say, I'm going the opposite direction. I don't want to be anywhere near that person. See, wisdom helps you see what's going on and defend yourself from the foolishness of other people. We're surrounded by other sinners whose wickedness could bring various types of disaster upon us or upon those we care for. When you read the book of Proverbs, right, the the wisdom that Solomon imparts to his sons in that book, he makes it very clear that wisdom leads to certain types of friendships and other types of people should be avoided. In wisdom, we pursue these types of friends and not these types of friends, right? There are people we should run towards in life and people that we should run away from. Wisdom defends us from ourselves from our temptations, and from others. And here's the trick. It even defends other people from us. Praise God for wisdom and that other people have it because sometimes we're not doing so hot. Sometimes we're the fools that other people need wisdom to defend themselves from, right? In summary, wisdom is indispensable to us when temptation and conflict arise. Wisdom is superior because folly leads us into the ditches of sin and it leaves us defenseless In life, here's some application. We must fear God. 
Godliness and true piety help us walk the narrow path. A true devotion to the Lord, true reverence for God. This is how we navigate a messy life filled with the temptation to run to wickedness or to a false understanding of righteousness. And how do we fear God in practice? What does Solomon say at the end of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12? Keep his commandments. Fearing the Lord in practice is keeping his commandments. Not so that we might be accepted by God, but because we already are in Christ Jesus. Second application is this. We should pursue wisdom. Not as the end all be all and not in order to be wise in our own eyes or puffed up, but we should pursue it and we should thank God for it because it protects us from disaster, the disaster of our temptations and our sins, the disaster of fallen people around us. And as I mentioned, it even protects people from us in our moments of foolishness and we should praise God for that. We should praise God as we look back on our lives and we see moments of error and stupidity and yet nobody was harmed. We should praise God for that. And lastly, we should humble ourselves before God if we have wisdom. He gives good gifts to his children. He equips us for life in a messy world. He directs our paths, and he is our ultimate hope and defender. So let us be humble humble as thankful children of God. So why do we need wisdom? Why is it better to sum it all up, the whole sermon? Wisdom gives us what we need to navigate life as it is. There's times when we look out at the world or we look at our lives and we say, I wish it was different. I wish it was this way. I wish the world wasn't so this. I wish the world wasn't so that. I wish it wasn't such a mess. Well, it is. And wisdom helps us to avoid the trap of wishing for a different world here under the sun. Wisdom helps us navigate the world as it is. So that's all good. It's gracious instruction from Solomon, from the word of God. And the source of it, as he says at the end of Ecclesiastes, is one shepherd who we know to be the good shepherd, Christ our Lord. But how do we get to the gospel from here? How does a passage like this draw our attention to the good news of Jesus? Well, the reason that we can receive this instruction from Solomon as covenant people and not as the enemies of God is because of Christ. Christ is the God described in this text. He's the God whose works we cannot fathom. We cannot understand. We cannot change. Christ is the Lord whose eternal decrees are fixed and unchangeable. Christ is the king who laid down his life both for the wicked fool and for the one who is upside down and inside out confused about righteousness. The one who's in an absolute mess. Just like the fool, they are saved by the blood of Christ. And it is Jesus who feared God the Father, and obtained for us an inheritance because he was perfectly righteous and perfect in wisdom. He did what we could not do. He met the standard that we could never meet. The reason that we can receive these words as instruction and not as condemnation is because of Jesus, praise God. He did what no one could do. It's because of the word of Christ and because of the work of his spirit that the fear of God dwells in the hearts of his people, which allows us to navigate life. It's because of what Jesus accomplished, because he died, was buried, because he rose again and ascended to the right hand of God the Father and poured out his spirit upon the church. Because of that, we can have wisdom, not human wisdom, but godly wisdom, which gives us strength to navigate a world of foolishness and wickedness. Wisdom is better, church. 
And the reason that this wisdom is better is because it comes not from man, but from the mediator, Jesus Christ, who is both God and man forever. He leads us as our king. He intercedes for us as our high priest. And he tells us the way of wisdom and the way of salvation as the final prophet of God. Let the hearer understand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your spirit imparts wisdom to us. And we ask that the spirit would make application of this word in our hearts. We offer this prayer in the great name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our King, who taught us to pray, our Father, our Father 